Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Quick, quick, before this week's episode begins, I just want to ask you to send me your running stories. And if you don't want to send one in, you should nominate someone else. I want to know why you started running, why you continue to run, and you could be featured on an upcoming episode of Human Race. Send me a couple sentences to rwaudio at rodale.com. That's rwaudio at rodale.com. If you write in, I will email you back personally. Thank you. I look forward to hearing your stories. I want to start by taking you back to 2011. Back to a race called the Western States 100-Mile Endurance Run. It was June in California. A runner named Noe Noe Castañón Mendez arrived at the Forest Hill checkpoint at 7.30 in the evening. The checkpoint is at mile 62 in the 100-mile race. Now, Noe is an accomplished ultra runner, but he wasn't there to compete. He was there as a pacer. And at that particular moment, he was a pacer without a runner. And no, nobody wanted to get a pacer. I was asking, hey, do you need a pacer? He said, no, no, thank you. Do you need a pacer? No, thank you. 7.30 became 8.30, became 9.30, became 10. No, thank you. Do you need a pacer? No, thank you. Pictures from that night show Noe sitting on a wooden fence in full gear. He's ready to go and he's beaming. He passed the time by banging a cowbell and encouraging runners. He offered his services enthusiastically and often. But at 10 p.m., Noe started worrying. The cutoff time for that aid station was at 10.45, And sure, Noe was there because he wanted to help, but he also needed to run. He had his own 100-mile race coming up in just a few weeks. Say, well, I got getting pretty close. And I say, and I don't have a runner. What are you going to do? What a waste. What a waste, yeah. So, yeah, I was making a noise with runners. Hey, if you know someone in a pace, I'm here. So, finally. Just a few minutes before the cutoff. Thomas arrived. Thomas Wong. I was I was dying out there. Once I reached uh, Forest Hills, I was I was dying. Thomas was a runner without a pacer. Noe was a pacer without a runner. What was your first interaction with Thomas? Yeah, well, Thomas at uh, that time, of course, uh, he's a New Yorker. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, no, no, he was pretty serious. I know I'm a grumpy person. I I don't like to socialize with people even nowadays. Thomas and Noe. They were quite the odd couple. Noe was born in Mexico and lived in California. Thomas was born in Hong Kong and lived in New York City. Noe worked as a car mechanic, Thomas a computer engineer on Wall Street. 
Noe is outgoing, an internal optimist, even in the most heartbreaking situations. And he's the kind of person who just makes friends wherever he goes. Thomas is an introvert. If I didn't have running, I'd be a, like, a hermit. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, and by some funny race luck, these two strangers and total opposites agreed to share hours of supreme suffering. 38 miles of mountains through the night and early morning, all while racing the clock. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. On each episode of Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week, pacers and their runners. And a relationship that takes place during a runner's most excruciating miles. This is when every ounce of energy is needed to continue, when absolutely everything hurts, when doubt closes in. It's a runner at their most raw and vulnerable, and it's that spot where a pacer needs to step in to keep the runner moving forward, but also to help them through their own personal darkness. There isn't any other relationship like it. When Thomas and Noe met for the first time, Thomas had been running for over 17 hours. I met Thomas and he said, you know what? Um, I, don't, I don't like to talk. Don't talk to me. And I said, okay, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> when he and Noe set out together, it was in the darkness. Headlamps casting pools of light on tiny slices of an epic mountainous landscape. Thomas requested that Noe stay in front of him. Thomas was just minutes from the cutoff time when they left the aid station. But when Noe's pace quickened to keep Thomas ahead of the strict cutoff schedule, Thomas balked. But I said, no, we don't need to slow down. We need to keep on moving. By mile 70, they gained 20 minutes. So that was progress. But they still had more than a marathon's worth of running to go. Around 3 a.m., with no other runners around and scant signage, Thomas began to worry. You know, I definitely remember I did ask Noe, are we on the right chair? And the the, the tone of my <laughs> my asking was definitely not nice. I, I can assure you that. Thomas questioned Noe's pacing abilities. He even accused Noe of getting lost. And, and, you know, if they were lost, they could potentially get hauled off the course. He asked Noe, what kind of pacer are you anyway? And frankly, Noe was wondering the same thing. And at the same time, I was thinking, yeah, maybe we're lost, but hopefully not. See... In theory, your job as a pacer is to keep your runner on track, to get your runner to the finish. But in practice, the task isn't nearly that straightforward. Runners train for months and years to get to this race, which means that failure is not insignificant. And at that moment, Thomas was nearing 24 hours on his feet. After that much time, it wasn't just that his body was beginning to break. He was dealing with pain, doubt, a lack of faith in himself. And that's where Noe needed to meet him. You know, the relationship was pretty tense, and I was always like, oh, hopefully I'm doing okay, or hopefully he's not mad with me. Like, 
So Thomas is having a hard time. So yeah, uh, but Thomas was not the best runner at that moment. Now he's good, but I, I'm talking about at that moment. But by 4.30 in the morning, Noe's energy started to flag too. He was stressed. He still wasn't sure if he was actually helping. He was super tired. He'd been on his feet for over six hours, and Thomas had been on his feet for 23. They were both feeling sleep deprivation and the mental energy it requires to continue when your body is screaming to stop. But then, nature intervened. When the sun rose that day, it was proof of progress. That morning, Noe took a selfie. He's in this yellow field with a single track through it, and he's just beaming at the camera, like whole face beaming. He's got this like tuft of black hair escaping from under a backwards baseball cap. He's still got his headlamp on, but it's off because it's sunny out. And over his shoulder in the background, there's this tiny struggling figure. It's Thomas, running. At mile 90, Thomas asked Noe, Do you think we're doing good? You know, and, and he was not responding because if you say yes, you make him feel comfortable. Because pacing isn't just about the ability to keep running. It's about the mental and sometimes physical games pacers need to play to keep their runners moving. So Noe didn't answer Thomas's questions, but in the continuum of all the things that pacers do to keep their runners going, that is pretty mild. I've heard about all kinds of crazy things that pacers pull to keep their runners on the road, including locking their runners out of cars, playing along with hallucinations so they'll keep going. Noe was once slapped across the face by a pacer concerned about him. When you are when you are a pacer, you need to be not necessarily mean but you need to be strict. Saying no to rest breaks, maintaining an uncomfortable pace, holding off on the accolades, negotiating with a grumpy runner, this for over 30 miles. I remember Noe telling me, we need to run or we're not gonna finish the race. I appreciate that. I mean, yes. Not, not no, in front no. of him, no, no, I did not. I did not show my picture in front of him. And it should be said here, even though Thomas was curt, Noe knew where he was coming from. It's not like a, that was his personality. I was clear and was understanding like a, he had already miles on his legs. So sometimes he's not him. But it works. Thomas gets further and further away from the cutoff time and closer and closer to the finish. And then at mile 98. It's when everything changed because it's when, it's when we realized, yes, we're going to finish the race. But there was still one unresolved issue. At that time, he also was calling me, hey, you. Noe had tolerated it up to this point. They had other things to worry about, obviously. But with the finish within their grasp. But at that moment, I said, you know what? No, my name is Noe. You call me Noe. That's my name, okay? And he says, uh, okay, 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 Noe. He says, you know, thank you so much for coming in. You know, I'm finishing these races because of you. Now, pacers typically peel off before the end of a race. They take their runners so far and then release their runners to the finish to cross on their own. And Noe was setting up to do just that. But Thomas stopped him. After all the pain and grumpiness, the confusion and doubt, 
Thomas knew one thing for sure. I, I didn't, I, I finished because of the pacer. Thanks to Noe. Thomas told Noe he wanted them to cross the finish line together. It was pretty, it was pretty emotional. He was very emotional and I was too. And then they were done. Noe and Thomas threw an arm around each other. They posed for photos. Thomas is smiling in these photos. And after the race, Thomas tells Noe that he owes him. And he wonders aloud what he could possibly do to make up for Noe's help, what he could offer as thanks. And I said, you know what? Um, what I did to you is nothing compared for what the runners have done with me. This is nothing. And when Thomas pressed him, Noe waved it off. And he said, why? What happened? No, no, you just, just enjoy the glory of your finish. Because that was not the moment to talk about everything. They hugged, parted ways. Thomas went to recover, and Noe went to get some sleep before logging a few more miles. He was running to get just one more day beyond the tragedy that had hit him two months earlier. After the break, Noe becomes the runner. And his pacers, his support team, they need to help with a lot more than just one race. So there's just a sliver of a moon tonight, just the smallest little sliver. When I meet up with Noe at a trailhead in Marin, California, it's already dark. It's Friday night. Noe stands by his car, adjusting his gear. He has food, a hydration belt, phone, extra batteries, an extra jacket, gloves, a whistle, a compass, pepper spray. You have a headlamp? No. I don't. Okay, you can use this. You want to? Yeah, so I... He hands me a headlamp because I did not bring one, and I immediately shine it in his eyes. The trail we're running winds down slowly to the ocean, with hills on either side. Noe plans to run 24 miles here tonight. I will run the first two with him. It's dark, but I feel really safe with Noe. He runs here at night all the time, often into the early hours of the morning. But if I were alone, I'd definitely be a little creeped out. Something Noe admits to feeling occasionally too, especially when he's up in the hills with wind howling. It turns crazy sometimes. Because of the wind. Because of the wind. And because sometimes you think like a, someone is coming in. You know, as I'm saying, yeah. you're just waiting for the monster to appear. In 2011, Noe signed up to run in a 199-mile relay race with some friends. He was a seasoned ultrarunner at this point. He transformed himself from a couch potato to a long, long-distance runner. Inspired in 2003 by one zany race in San Francisco. And what I saw, uh, I w- it changed my life completely. That race was called Bait to Breakers. <laughs> And I saw crazy people, you know, custom, all kind of people. Costumes, floats, lots of nudity. But what it, what it changed my life, what, what got my attention, is that I saw all kind of people. Children, old people, handicapped, fat people, tall, very athletic. And I love it. And at the same time, I, f- 
feel shame on myself because I was not doing anything for me. For the whole next year, Noe trained to participate in this race, Bay to Breakers. In 2011, Noe had a full training calendar, including pacing at the Western States 100 and his own 100-miler, the Tahoe Rim Trail Endurance Run in July. But before this, Noe had kind of a fun run set up. He signed up to run the anchor leg of this relay, this 199-miler, that goes from Calistoga, California, to Santa Cruz. And the way this works is that 12 runners take turns running. There's two vans. Each van has six people in it. And Noe was in the second van, and he was the last leg of the run, so the 12th runner. It meant that he could go to work at his job as a car mechanic on Saturday, which is the busiest day of the week for him, and still run his first of three legs of the race. So Noe goes to work on Saturday. He comes home, and he meets his brother, who had agreed to drive Noe to meet the rest of his teammates. I, I had a Best Buy gift card, $100. And I gave it to my brother. And I said, hey, you want this gift card? I, said, I give it to you. And he says, what? You don't need it. And I said, you know what? Um, I don't need it. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not rich, but, but uh, I have everything that I need. I have a job. I have a family. I like what I do. I enjoy everything. I said, God has been so good with me. You know, he gave me everything. I don't deserve it, but I have it. But if he wants to take it for me, he can do it. And I wouldn't say anything. That was at 6 p.m. Noe's brother drove Noe to the course to meet up with the rest of his relay team. He met him out in the middle of nowhere. And then Noe's monster appeared. At 10 p.m., the house burned down to the ground and we lost everything. Noe's house burned down in the evening but because he was running and with spotty or non-existent cell reception, his wife couldn't reach him. It wasn't until 6 a.m. that Noe finally received a call from his wife. Two of their dogs were dead, and all their belongings were gone. So that was pretty, yeah, it was pretty sad, uh, so I didn't know what to do, so, so it was everything in completely destroyed and fire. I mean, I was afraid, you know, because what are we going to do? It's just the first reaction. So he just kept running. Why'd you decide to continue the race? Uh, when, when I knew about the news, I didn't mention to any of my friends because um, there is nothing they can do. Of course, I was really upset. I just want to scream, but I tried to be calm. Noe was in the van with six other runners, and the team was competing for first place in the master's division. Noe's house was already burnt down. He felt like there was nothing he could do about that. So Noe kept the news to himself and kept running. After the team finally got to the finish, and they did earn that first place in the Master's Division prize, by the way, Noe finally shared the news of what had happened with the people that he was running with. Man, that's, I mean, that's just so... Like, where did you go? Like, where did you go? Where did you even go? Did you go back to your house or where? No, no uh, we have to stay in the hotel uh, for, for some days because we didn't have a place, a place to, to live. And we, we were staying at Red Cross. They help us for a few days for, you know, hotel. Try to see what we can do because it was a shock, completely shock everything. You know, the loss of the dogs, the houses, 
everything. So, yeah. The aftermath of the fire was one awful thing after another. And then after that, um, my car was stolen. Noe's car was stolen just two days before his own 100-mile race. He was planning to run the Tahoe Rim Trail, but his car was parked outside of the temporary apartment building where he was staying after his house burned down. To make matters worse... And at that time, I had all, the, all my running gear inside, so I said, oh no, what are you going to do? All of it was gone. Months of preparation and hundreds of dollars worth of gear completely wiped out. I think for many people, his car being stolen after his house burned down, that would be the end. Noe had to deal with police and insurance, he had to take time off work, plus just dealing with the emotional strain of losing your home and then your car. They're like these foundational things that you just count on. You, they're constants in your life. And then having to start over from the beginning with just everything. This is kind of, I don't know, this is maybe a sensitive question, but like after you say, if God wants to take it away from me, he can, like how do you take that? Like when it all does go disappear, like what is that? I mean. Yeah, you know, I, I don't forget that, that, that moment because that was how I mentioned it to my brother, but I didn't know like that, that would be happening. Today, Noe has a few small reminders of the fire. Next to his bed, he keeps a trophy. It's the kind given out by soccer teams and running clubs. It's got this little marble base with kind of a funky pedestal. You can make out most inspirational on the little plaque in front. There's this gold figure attached to the pedestal. It used to be a runner, but now... It's folded over at the ankles like a deflated balloon. It's just hanging down in front. When Noe cleans his room, he does not dust it. He wants to retain that memory of the fire, that grittiness, how hard it was. Word spread quickly about Noe's house and his car and all his lost gear. Noe volunteered with a couple of clubs in the Bay Area, and lots of people knew him. He did get a trophy for being the most inspirational runner, after all. In this extremely dark time, when Noe was filled with doubt, sadness, and he was struggling to find a way forward, his running friends stood by him. People offered clothes, furniture, computers, money. They helped Noe build up the elements of a home again. So I feel so blessed. Uh, I feel so blessed, and because because basically I, I didn't need anything after that. And when his car was stolen, the running community stepped in to help a second time. They loaned him gear on last minute notice, because Noe did not want to bow out of the race. I just wanted to have something good. I want to finish. I want to feel like I, something good can happen to me. That was it. His community, his running buddies, they paced him through tragedy to get him to the start of his 100-mile race. The will to finish it, however, it does not earn you a belt buckle. Noe had one more massive struggle yet. I couldn't sleep the previous two days before the race. And of course, before the race, you don't really sleep because of the nerve. 
The problem, of course, was that Noe had over 24 hours of running ahead of him. So in the morning during the race, I was I was completely, you know, some those days when you feel like you have sand in your eyes because you didn't sleep. I was like that in the morning. I said, oh my God, I don't want to finish a hundred miles like this. But by mile 18, Noe really, really, really wanted to sleep. And that feeling just did not let up. He felt nauseated, he couldn't keep his food down, and he was running dangerously close to the cutoffs. By mile 72, Noe was really not sure if he could continue. He sat down with his head in his hands. He was really disappointed in himself, feeling like he let down the people who'd supported him after the fire, supported him at this race. Fortunately for him, Noe had called on a pacer to help. And in this pacer, Noe's good deeds as a running buddy to Thomas, they came back to him. Noe's pacer was there to help him achieve one thing that would be a light in all of this darkness, to be able to finish this race. And his pacer reminded him at this point, he's like, you know, the race is not over until it's over. And at that moment, Noe thought about his dogs, Tsunami and Pelicina, how they both died in the fire. Noe believed one dog ran in to try to save the other. And in that moment, in that thinking about his dogs and the fire, Noe had a realization. He realized that he needed to save himself. So he got up, started to move forward, and as they descended the ridge, Noe and his pacer, you know, he had the will to keep going, but he was just so tired, and he started losing grasp of what was in front of him. Okay, can you tell me about your hallucinations? You know, hallucinations, you know, you see monsters. I was seeing castles, you know, uh, or you see rats. And because I was acting kind of crazy because hallucination, tired, sleeping, hungry, you know, everything. Suddenly I was moving and... Noe's pacer slapped him across the face. And you don't respond and you don't move very well. So yeah, that was, that was pretty good story. Noe made up time, and he finished, thanks to two pacers. Noe calls them angels that God sent to help him. After all the terrible things he'd been through, Noe says finishing with the help of friends, with pacers, showed him that there was still beauty left in the world. More on beauty, running, and pacing. Thomas and Noe. That's after the break. Thomas Wong, number 374. It is now 8.50. We, we just left. Just to block. How are you feeling, Thomas? Sucks. <sighs> what does that mean? Describe that feeling. I've been hurt. This is Thomas. He's just a few miles past the halfway point of the Western States 100. He ran it this year, this year for the first time since 2011, when he was paced by Noe. But at least the heat has subsided, and now should be a more comfortable run. The other voice you hear here is Adrian Vaughn. Things will turn around, you'll get a second win. 
You're doing great. Just keep moving. She paced Thomas this year at the race. I asked Adrian to interview Thomas during the race, not realizing at the time that this interview would violate two cardinal rules of running along with Thomas. Adrian was talking to Thomas, a no-no. Also, she was running in close enough proximity that she could hold her phone near him. You know, he likes his pacer in front. Needless to say, this was the first and only voice memo that was recorded that weekend. What he I needed. Was grumpy at that moment. He, already. at that moment, was very grumpy and was like, ah, I can't believe this shit. <laughs> no. I, f- I think I, I'm a little bit on the grumpy side. So I think I, I'm sure that other runners don't, don't be so blunt in terms of how they feel. Adrian picked up Thomas at an aid station just past mile 55. It had been over six years since Thomas met Noe on the course. And in the years between, Thomas had become a much more experienced runner. This race was his 14th 100-miler, and he was hoping it would be his 10th finish. He'd also completed, and this is a little hard for me to wrap my mind around, a 200-mile race, too. So this is all to say, this time around, he was more confident in his running, and he now understood the pacer's job and the clear benefits of having one. But he was selective. Most races he still ran alone, The only people he trusts to pace him are Noe and Adrian. It's a special relationship, and Thomas treats it as such. And if Noe and Thomas got to know each other during a flash of extreme intensity in the middle of the night during a particularly excruciating race for Thomas, Adrian's path to pacing was years in the making. Well, it took two years to to say hi and just have like superficial conversation. I was a shy person. I'm still a shy person. I, I don't usually talk to people that much, <laughs> even even I'm interested in someone. Thomas and Adrian met each other in 2006. They were both members of a running club in Manhattan called Powered by Dim Sum. So for two years, you were interested in her and still didn't say anything? Well, more than two years. I mean, we know each other since 2006, but we didn't hang out together until... Four years ago. The breakthrough was facilitated by Facebook, where they started talking about rock climbing and food. And that's how we kind of started. As I said, we we love food more than running or anything else. We do share (laughs) a lot of common interests besides running. Adrian posted about squid ink pasta, and Thomas took that as a cue to invite her to dinner. They've been together ever since. In fact, I met them on a Tuesday evening after work in New Jersey where they own a house together. When they started dating, Adrian preferred marathons. Thomas was deep into trail running and long-distance running. They began spending more and more time together. Thomas had a pack schedule of 100 milers that year, and Adrian helped out at his races. He says that I'm an ultra groupie because I know everyone and I chat with everyone and I know more of his friends than he he remembers. She also started trail running. And in the sport, they found a shared perspective. It's, it's the freedom. It's the freedom that you, when you run up the mountain, you run you're on the ridge, and then you look at the, the vista of the mountain. You look at the sunrise or sunset or, or the view of like a couple hundred miles away, and then on a clear blue sky, you get that 
feelings, you get a freedom. And you are looking at Mother Nature and all her gifts. I mean, that's beyond words can describe. They're sitting on their couch in their living room. Thomas has his hand on Adrian's knee. In the world they're sharing, it feels intimate. I feel lucky to be sitting there hearing about it. And then he gave this explanation for how he and Adrian approach trail running. And it's, it's unlike any explanation I've ever heard. Thomas and Adrian describe the experience like dancing. The way I look at it is the way we run or, or dance. Sometimes when you run downhill, you may run fast. You, you feel the joy of running. You, you let yourself go. There's like a painter that use different color or different brushes to put the painting on the canvas. So the nature or the trail or the mountain is our canvas. The dancing part is the creativity, the creation of how we express our creativity through nature, through our running. I just, I love the idea of trail running as art. And I love it even more knowing how the process of making that art affects Thomas. I'm, I'm always a grumpy runner, so <laughs> it, it makes no difference whether it's a Western state or any other ways. I think it's really funny to c contrast that with like this gorgeous explanation of running in the mountains and how beautiful it is and how it's an art form. And then you're like, but when I'm in the moment. I think that's, that's no dichotomy between I, I can I can envision it's a is a beautiful masterpiece Mona Lisa painting, but while at the same time, it, it's a struggle. I think I think if you look at artists, they they paint a masterpiece or, or, or like a Shakespeare, they write, they go through all these kind of struggles. When you go through the struggles, that's where the beauty comes out. So the struggle is a necessary hurdle to realizing artistic beauty. Thomas really embraces this idea of struggle and its necessary role in. Achievement might not be the right word, but struggle as a means to get something good, essential, important. In 2014, Thomas knew he wanted to ask Adrian to marry him. He had a pretty busy schedule of 100 milers. But if you're a guy who embraces the challenge of races like this, you can't just propose over dinner. Thomas decided that when he finished an 100-miler, he'd propose to her with the belt buckle that the race gives for him finishing. So the belt buckle is like the 100-mile equivalent of a race medal, and it's hard-earned. But there was only one problem, and it was a big one. A number of races, I was uh, mostly DNF, so and I was planning to every race, I was planning to propose to her at, at the finish with the buckle. At mile 20 of one race that summer, Thomas even announced his intention to propose to Adrian to a group of people at the aid station, to the volunteers' great delight. He was optimistic. But this race again, he had to drop out. The summer months passed without a finish. The very last race of the year was Grindstone, a 100-miler that takes place in Virginia. He didn't want me to pace him at all, but I kind of forced myself. <laughs> she parked her car in the middle of nowhere and jumped in for the last 13 miles of the 100-mile race. It was her first experience pacing. I was chirpy. I was being my chirpy self, and I was singing, and he was not having it. I so remember. Yes, he turned around and said, could you shut the f up? I'm like, 
Excuse me? <laughs> I'm trying to entertain you here. <laughs> it was about 95. And I was proud of myself. I was singing Elvis, you know, and I was having a ball. <laughs> uh, now you, you can understand the dynamic between a run and Pesa. Even we are, we are a couple already at that moment. Yeah, I was like shocked. Uh, uh, like it's that, complicated. The dark side of him really came out. That was the first time that I actually experienced that darkness, like in that intensity. And that was funny. In retrospect, it's funny. But at the time, I felt like, oh, where is this coming out from? <laughs> like The darkness. It may have startled Adrian, but she understands now that it's not really about her. The darkness comes when you are way past your limits of physical and mental energy, and yet you've still got five miles to go. The darkness comes when five miles is potentially an hour on your feet, after the 95 that you've already done in succession. The darkness comes when your eyes feel like sand, your brain aches, and every fiber of your being is telling you 33 hours is too long to be awake. Too long to be on your feet. Too long to be running up and down mountains. So Thomas just couldn't process Adrian's enthusiasm. It's not that he didn't love her or appreciate her, but in that moment, he couldn't listen to her singing and watch her dancing and run at the same time. It took too much mental energy. He just needed her presence, a silent connection, a steady support, while he was at his worst. The more I've talked to Adrian, Noe, and Thomas about this, they all insist that the way a runner is during these 100-mile races, that's not a true reflection of who they are in person. Thomas is not nearly as grumpy. He and Adrian are still together and clearly in love. And I kind of started to think about the relationship between the pacer and runner a little bit like what people told me ahead of time about childbirth. You just need what you need in that moment and your tone or whatever profanity you use is not a reflection of who you actually are or how much you care about your partner. Anyway, so running these 100 mile races, I think is kind of like that. You know, it just it's just so hard and it really strips you down to like your rawest emotion. But the reason Thomas was going into that darkness was that this was his last 100-miler of the year, and he needed to get to the finish because he wanted to propose to the woman he loved, the one he just told to STFU. And after 34 hours, it was done. Thomas finished the race. But as he got the belt buckle and turned to Adrian, she ran off. She had to catch a ride to her car, so Thomas missed the opportunity to propose to her in person after the race. So ultra running is a reflection of your real life. You have to go through hell <laughs> before you succeed. He explained the whole thing the next day. She said yes. Because here's the other thing about that whole going through hell part. The people that you're with when you go through it, it's sort of like a fast track to intimacy, to friendship. And for Adrian and Thomas, to love. In the years after they met, Thomas has gone on to pace Noe in races, and Noe has paced Thomas again. And for this most recent Western States, six years after the Western States where they first met, Noe drove up to pace Thomas again, 
And in fact, he worked with Adrian to make sure she was prepared for the challenging job. And like he just told me, you know, Tom is just, just one of those people. He just, he, mm-hmm. he wants, he likes what he likes and he, you know, and don't ask a lot of questions. Just, just try to be there for him and that's all he needs you know if he needs to eat remind him that he needs to eat and then you know don't talk too much because he doesn't like that <laughs> that's what I true remember. yes adrian paced thomas for 26 miles and in this race thomas had a breakthrough with his pacer i was able to draw energy from her pacing i felt good i must say I know I have never felt that before until this race. And then Noe took over. It was sort of a coming home, a reunion at the spot they met. Now, the Western States 100 finishes on a track. Noe ran Thomas to the finish just like before. And Adrian, who was waiting for the two to arrive, she joined them as well. She took a video of that moment. Good job, honey! Thomas and Adrian hold hands, and Noe is on Thomas's right. Thank you, Noe! You guys are awesome! You guys did it! How are you feeling? Suck! Great! Awesome! <laughs> Thomas says sucks, and Noe says fresh. It's the most Noe and Thomas response ever. Every time I watch this video, it just cracks me up. Thomas gave Adrian a kiss, and Noe, Adrian, and Thomas, they crossed the finish line together, all holding hands. Thank you, Noe. Thank you so much. And then we crossed the finish line together, because we, we were together. I couldn't do it without him. And yeah, uh, as, as, uh, at Forest Hill, we started as two stranger and then for the next 35 miles or 30 miles we were like the art couples <laughs> like i mean i'm a chinese he he's he, he's hispanic we spoke two different languages we think totally different i'm from new york east coast he's from california west coast it's like the total opposite i mean i mean how art couple you can become i mean we we just we're totally strangers from totally di- two different worlds. We bonded at the end, the last four miles from No Hands Bay, we, we bonded. We, we realized what we did, we accomplished, and we became famous ever since. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with feedback from Christine Fennessy, Kit Fox, and Brian Dalek. Theme music is by Danny Koch, Human race is a proud part of Panoply. Quick shout out here to Lauren Smith. Keep running and thanks for listening.